0: Guys. Man, what a wonderful fellowship you have, what a neat spirit you have among you, and I feel really grateful to be able to do, uh, open up God's Word with you this morning. So my name is Michael, and I uh, uh, live in Nashville, Tennessee. I uh, work for, uh, in, in real life, you know, real job, I work for a company called Lifeway Christian Resources, and um, I lead a team. There now, I've been there for about 10 years. Uh, My wife and I have three children. We have a 12-year-old named Joshua, and we have a 9-year-old little girl named Andy. And we have uh, another son named Christian, who is 7. So, other things about me, I'm also a volunteer basketball coach. Uh, (laughs) Yesterday, we had our second game. We're the Pumas. Uh, 7-year-old, 7- and 8-year-old little basketball players who can almost... Hit the rim with the basketball. We had approximately 842 offensive rebounds in our game, morning, and we scored eight points. So, but we're working on it. Guys. Here's the the thing about being being an offensive uh, being a, a basketball coach is really just absurd because I'm, I'm not coordinated really at all. I'm not very fast. My vertical leap is about three inches off the ground on a good day. Um, so I, I find myself with these seven and eight-year-old boys uh, trying to put together practice schedules and then go out and coach this game and l- literally every Monday afternoon I take 30 or 45 minutes and, and watch YouTube videos about basketball because I don't know. I mean, do you guys know what a, what what how to set a pick? I learned that on YouTube last week. And then I taught the boys how to do it. Uh, and, and so, you know, like yesterday in the game, my son Christian come down the court and I say, Christian, set a pick for Sam. And Christian does it, and then he gets whistled. Apparently, you can't... You can't do this to set a pick. Like you can't just follow the guy around and throw a block for him. That's you do, but hey, you live and learn, right? Um, and that's what I'm doing when I. So I, 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 have the outfit. Like I've got the red coaching shirt that says Upward Basketball right here, and I've got. A, I bought a whistle, uh, so I have the gear. Uh, I even bought a pair of, of Nike. Uh, kind of coaching pants that that are are really super comfortable. I like to wear them. So on Saturdays when I go, I look like a coach. But the truth is, anybody that knows me, I'm not really a basketball coach. I'm only acting like a basketball coach. It strikes me that we do that in all kinds of areas of our lives. I think that most of us, in some area of our lives, live with a deep and abiding fear of being found out. Like at work, we have a deep and abiding fear that at some point people are going to wake up and realize that I really don't know all of what I appear to know in this job. If you're a parent in this room, you know that 90% of parenting is just acting like you know what you're doing and hoping that you don't mess it up. You know, when we had... I, so I've, you know, guys, your baby is, is six days old. That is amazing. I remember... When our son was born, it it was great while we were in the hospital. Because everybody's there, they're taking care of you and bringing your food. When the baby cries, they take him away and leave something to him and bring him back. And then comes the moment when you're trying to check out of the hospital and they literally take you out and leave you at the front of the hospital and just sort of pat you on the back and say, here's your human that you're responsible for. (laughs) It's terrifying because you're you're sort of acting in this role that you don't really know what to do. Now the truth is, that's fine in most areas of life, you know? Fake it till you make it is really okay in a lot of areas of life. It's really okay at work. In parenting, it's a necessity. You're just doing the best you can by God's grace day by day. But there is an area of life in which we really are play-acting much of the time, when it's absolutely not okay. And that is when we try to assume the role of God for ourselves. We do this perhaps more regularly than we recognize. And in fact, our assumption of that role is really the core root of what sin is. Sin, at its very core, is the human tendency... To try and do what only God can do, and to be who only God can be, both for ourselves and for other people. That's what sin really is. And we see it all throughout the Bible. In fact, you've already seen it happen in your study of Genesis. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you get the creation account of this wonderful, majestic, awe-inspiring scene of when the Lord speaks the universe into existence. He speaks it into existence, and he steps back, and he says, this is good, and then he speaks man into existence, forming him out of the dust of the earth, and he leans down and breathes the breath of life into Adam, and then he steps back and says, it was good, and now it's very good, and he takes the humans, and he puts them in a garden, an idyllic setting for human flourishing. And then comes the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And you'll remember the words of the temptation. It was a temptation to be like God. So did God really say, did God really say that you can eat from all of these trees? Isn't there one tree that's set apart? The reason that God held that back from you is because He knows that if you eat from that tree, that you'll be like God. And don't you want to be like God? He's the root of sin. It's the human tendency to try and do what only God can do and to try and be who only God can be. You can take that tendency not only from the garden and actually fast forward it even to our present day right now. You think about something like sexual sin that we find in our culture today. We find the same tendency here. When we sin sexually apart from God's plan for the way that human beings are supposed to Uh, actualize these sexual desires that He's given us, we are putting ourselves in the place of God and we are claiming uh, that we have a better plan than He does. When we see sins related to power, when people try to achieve a measure of power for their own ends, this is at its core an attempt at self-determination to be able to do what only God should be able to do, which is to exercise maximum authority over the lives of another. We see it in the sin of greed when we try and look to materialistic things to make ourselves happy and content and fulfilled, well, this place of making us happy and content and fulfilled is what only God is capable of doing for us on our behalf. So all of these sins, if you go right down the list, have at their core this same commonality of human tendency to try and do what only God can do and to try and be who only God can can be. This is how Paul would describe sin in Romans chapter 1. This is what he says beginning in verse 18, that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what He has made, and as a result, people without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify God or show Him gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God. for They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. The root of sin is this human tendency to try and do what only God can do and to be who only God can be. And we're going to see it absolutely starkly clear in the passage today that we want to look at from the book of Genesis. Now, just to review where we've come from so far in your study, right? Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, we find creation. Then in Genesis chapter 3, we find the fall when God's creation is marred by the presence of sin, not just in terms of our our humanness being distorted as we've thrown away by both our our active will and by our nature, uh, the image of God that is inside of us. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3, and then we saw how uh, the, the downward spiral of wickedness continued until God eventually came to the point where makes this incredible statement in the early chapters of Genesis where he actually regretted that he had made anything at all. And so he resolved that he was going to judge the earth through a flood, and yet he saved a remnant of his creation for himself through Noah. And because Noah believed and trusted in God, he was saved on this vessel of his salvation, the ark. And we've seen how through Noah, there was a repopulation of human of humankind. And now we come to Genesis chapter 11, When we see that this mass of humanity, after God's judgment and his salvation through the the flood, through the ark, that they are banding together, but they're not banding together under the lordship of God. They're banding together around a sinful impulse. So let me read this text to you from Genesis chapter 11. It says, at one time, the whole earth had the exact same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. And they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the men were building And the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now when you first read this text, it can look like that what's happening here is actually a very positive thing. Because it looks like this is just human beings flourishing. I mean, they're coming together in community. They're exercising their minds. I mean, clearly they have to have some kind of architectural experience to start building this tower. They've got to have a knowledge of mathematics and other things. They're building a city. They're putting these things together. They're achieving their potential. So you could look at this and say, this is actually positive. So what is the big deal, God? Why is it such a big deal? So they wanted to build a tower in the midst of a city. Can't we just let them have their tower and their city? But when we dig a little deeper, what we find is that same tendency of self-determination and self-governance and self-regulation and self-reliance that is at the core and the root of all sin. Now we also might look at this and say, okay, good enough. So we won't build a tower, right? That's the lesson from Genesis chapter 11. That we don't need to build a tower. We don't need to build a huge city. We don't need to do any of those things. We don't need to be like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 and set up an image of ourselves and gather all kinds of people from our community or our neighborhood and say, hey guys, at 3 o'clock today, I want you everybody to come out here in the middle of the street. i built this big golden tower. Everybody's going to bow down. And they're going to worship me in the form of this tower. So we could say, okay, that's a pretty simple lesson. That's what I'll take from the Bible today. Is that I'm not going to build a tower in my own image for my own worship. But if that's what we take from this, then we're failing to see at least two things from this text that are deeply convicting to us about our own tendency to do what only God does and to be who only God should be. So let's look a little bit deeper here and see what exactly these people are doing to find relatable points for ourselves. And here's the first thing that we see that is sinful on their part. We see in these people a desire for their own glory. see it in the text. Remember when they gather together, they come, they start building a city, they build a tower, and what they say, the reason they're doing this, they say, let us build this to make a name for ourselves. They're building this tower for their own glory for their own reputation, for their own status, to bolster their own pride. Glory is recognition and honor and respect. And in the Bible, glory is what is rightly and only and exclusively assigned to God because He's the only one that really deserves it. Isaiah chapter 6, you might remember this passage, when Isaiah the prophet is taken into the throne room of God and he's confronted with this wonderful, amazing, but but terrifying image of the reality of God. You remember in Isaiah 6 that the refrain that's going on in heaven is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the earth. Now the right way to respond to the glory of God is what we find in the writings of the prophets like Habakkuk, which reveal a longing for the earth to be filled with the glory of the Lord. You also find in the Bible that God refuses to share his glory with idols in passages like Isaiah 42 8. In fact, when looking at the glory of God through Scripture, you find that sometimes the glory of God was even a tangible reality, especially in the Old Testament. It was a White hot, consuming fire on top of the mountain when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments. And when Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock as the glory of the Lord passed by, he was worried that he was going to be consumed. It was the glory of the Lord that consumed the sacrifice and filled the tabernacle when it was completed in Leviticus chapter 9. So the Lord is serious about His glory. He's serious about His name. He's serious about right attribution. He's serious about this, and what we find in Genesis chapter 11 is the people saying that we're making the willful choice instead of coming under and having a love and a desire for the glory of God, that we're going to try to make a name for ourselves. So we find thievery in Genesis chapter 11. Thievery of the glory of God, taking something that rightly belongs to God and attributing and applying it only to ourselves. So how might we do this today if not through building a tower so that people will bow down in our own image? Well, I think one of the most practical ways that we see it is that we see it in our own desire to revel in our own intelligence or our own strategy or our own talent or our own whatever. It's the desire for, to be recognized for all of these things. There's a incredibly ironic part about this because everything that we have, whether it is talent or whether it is strategy or whether it's intelligence or whatever it is, all of these things ultimately find their source in God and in God alone. The only reason why we have any of these things that we do is because God has seen fit to entrust these things to us to make much of Him and His glory and His renown. So we might do it, When we claim that we are the source of our own abilities. When we take true credit for the stuff that we have accomplished. But we also might seek our own glory in another, maybe more subtle way. And that's simply through the desire to be recognized. So Jared and I were talking this morning about um, house projects. And I freely admit that I... Man, I... Much like my basketball coaching, I'm also not good at doing things around the house. I, 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 you might be asking Michael, "What are you good at?" I don't know. Not these things. Uh, but but you know, I can do the basic stuff. Like I can change the light bulbs, and I can change the air conditioning filters. I can do that. But on the air conditioning filters, really, the only reason that I change the air conditioning filters is because about a year ago, my wife and I signed up for this thing that's an air conditioning filter delivery system. Have you guys seen this? It's awesome. So you, you it's a subscription service and you just put in the size of your filters and you can determine how often you want them delivered to your front door. And that's how I know when it's time to change the air conditioning filter. Because I get a big, big box on my friend. Oh, it's time to change the air conditioning filters. So that happened last weekend. Friday, the box came. And I thought, well, apparently it's time to do this. All right. So my wife had had gone out. She she had gone for a walk or or something. and, and, And so I do this. I'm changing the air conditioning filters. And because I'm not awesome at doing things around the house, it takes me... You know, forty percent longer than it would take the average human to do it because I can never remember. Does the arrow point in or does it point out? What you know, I which which one goes where? So it takes me a little while to do it. And there's there's one in the basement, and then there's one in the main floor, and then there's one in the upstairs. The one in the upstairs. You got to get the, the ladder out to get up because it's kind of on the ceiling and punch the things together and get hit when it falls down and all that stuff. You know, all that kind of stuff. So, It's the end of this 30 to 40 minute process. I finally got them done and I've got the dirty filters and all the packing that the other stuff came in. And now I've got to go and and throw all of this stuff away in the garbage. And this is how small of a person I am. I have the fleeting thought looking at this garbage that has now accumulated. You know, if I throw these away, there will be no evidence that I have done my job. <laughs> Maybe she should just wait like 15 minutes so that when my wife comes in, she will see that I have changed the air conditioning filters and will then recognize the work that I've done. I don't want to have to say to her, hey, guess what? I changed the air conditioning filters. I'm just going to leave this trash here so she'll see it and then recognize it. You ever feel that way? Yes. You ever feel like there's this compulsion inside of you, this need to be recognized because of something that you've done that nobody knows that you have? Some accomplishment you've had at work? Some brilliant parenting strategy that you've employed that your children didn't thank you for? Some element of recognition where you feel like you are being slighted unless someone gives you praise for the thing that you have done. Come, let us build a tower for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us be recognized for our responsibility, for our strategic thinking, for our intelligence. Let us be acknowledged. And into that, the gospel steps in and says, Jesus already knows your name. And not only does he know your name, but the essence of following Jesus is self-denial. Don't make a name for yourself. You don't need to be recognized. Give yourself to the recognition of another. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the whole face of the earth. So the people, first of all, were seeking their own glory. The second thing that we find in here in which these people were doing what only God can do and trying to be who only God can be is that they were afraid of being scattered over the face of the whole earth. Remember they said that. We're going to seek a name for ourselves, make a name for ourselves. If we don't do this, then we're going to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So these people were not only choosing to seek their own glory, they were also choosing to live apart from a reliance on God to do what only He can do. For them. In other words, these people were sinning in their attempts at self-preservation and self-protection. They were seeking an aid for themselves, and they were seeking to protect themselves. Now, this is where we have to be a little bit careful, because we live in a very responsible, driven culture, kind of. So we don't want to misinterpret this and say that the Lord is saying you don't need to lock your doors at night. We don't want to say that it's wrong to have a 401k plan at your workplace. It's not wrong to buy an insurance policy. It's not wrong to put your seatbelt on when you leave here today. It's not wrong to watch your intake of red meat and to not smoke. I mean, these things are not wrong. Those are stewardship issues. Where it becomes wrong, though, is when you find your ultimate security in what you can do for yourself instead of faith in what only God can do for you. Where we ought to find safety is not in locked doors, it's not in insurance policies, it's not in our planning for the future or anything like that. Where we find ultimate safety is where only God can give us, and that's through Himself. The truth is that God delights in a people who are cognizant of their great need for Him. The reality is that we're all in great need of God. The only difference between us is that some of us are more cognizant of that need on a daily basis than others are. So every once in a while something happens in your life that sort of breaks you out of the mode of self-reliance and self-protection. These are often very, very difficult events for us to handle. But one of the ways that the Lord will often redeem these world shattering, cataclysmic, upheaval of life kind of events is by reminding us that we are in need of Him for even the next breath that we take. That the only reason our heart beat is because the Lord wills it to be so. We stand in need of the Lord. Every single moment. And so you really could say that all of these things, which may be responsible things to do, putting on your seatbelt, insurance policies, 401k, all of those things are, in a way, again, play-acting. It's us contributing to the illusion that we really can protect ourselves. But we can't protect ourselves. Only the Lord can protect us. Only the Lord can preserve us. And only the Lord knows the right way to do that. Jesus wanted us to live not like the people of Genesis 11 that say we are so afraid of being scattered across the whole earth that we've got to take measures of self-preservation into our own hands. Instead, Jesus wanted, to live, wanted us to live in the spirit of daily cognizant realization of our need for God. This is what He told us when He taught us to pray. you remember this? He said, you should pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then He said, you should pray like this, give us this day our daily bread. It's instructed to me that the Lord Jesus did not tell me to pray for tomorrow's bread. He didn't tell me to pray for the bread for 10 years from now. He said, pray for the daily bread. Now, why would Jesus tell us to pray like that? Is it because the Lord is not going to provide for us 10 years from now? Is it because the Lord doesn't care about what's going to happen either next week or two months from now or 10 years from now? And the answer is no. Jesus knows. That the Lord is very concerned about those things on on our behalf. The reason I think that He told us to pray specifically like this is so that we would wake up every morning with the realization that ultimately what we get today comes from the hand of God. Our provision today comes from the hand of God. And that tomorrow, our provision then, comes from the hand of God bread can me, all kinds of different things. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that when you woke up this morning that Jesus already knew the kind of bread that you would need for today? You don't know what kind of bread you're going to need today. You may actually need physical bread. You might not know where the food that you're going to eat tonight is going to come from. You might not know. But there might be another need That you don't even know that you're going to have a need for that's going to happen today. You might not know that you're going to need God's measure of strength for the challenge that's going to wait for you two hours from now. You might not know what emotional turmoil is going to hit you in three hours. You might not know what challenge your family is going to face. You might not know. You might not know any of those things, but the Lord does. He does. So when you pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, you are implicitly trusting that the Lord knows what kind and how much bread you're going to need for this day. And then you wake up again tomorrow and do it over again. Friends, Maybe the most helpful phrase that you could take from the sermon this morning is something that's incredibly simple. It's something that's just been helpful for me, particularly over the last five years or so. It's just to remind my soul every day, God will take care of me. God will take care of me. When you really believe God will take care of you, it keeps you from feeling that compulsion to take everything into your own hands. You're able to let go when people have wronged you significantly. Why? It's not because what they did to you wasn't wrong. It's because God will take care of me. When when the disease comes that you are not prepared for, and you don't know what your future is going to look like, you can live in a daily spirit of hope and without anxiety. Not because that disease might not claim your life, but because God will take care of me. You can live in a world that is constantly in flux with new political systems, with new political leaders, with an uncertain future in a lot of ways. And how can you do that? Because God will take care of me. The way that you fight the compulsion of self-determination and self-preservation is not by having all of your ducks in a row for the next 10 years. It's through a firm faith in the fact that that God will take care of me. He's going to give me my daily bread, and then tomorrow He's going to do it all over again. So we find here in this passage are a group of people that are seeking their own glory and a group of people who are seeking their own self-protection. And in both of those things, they're trying to do what only God can do, and they're trying to be what only God can be. And so the Lord comes down and exercises judgment. Now the judgment that God exercises here is interesting. One of the reasons that it's interesting is because this story, this account breaks the pattern that we've seen set up in the first several chapters of Genesis. I mean, think about where you've been in this sermon series before. Because there's a definite pattern to what happens in these accounts, okay? Okay. So the pattern is that there is sin. There's sin in the garden. There's sin among the people with Noah. There's sin. And then the Lord sees the sin and He exercises judgment. In the case of the garden, the judgment is that there's going to be death and there's going to be exile from the garden. In the case of Noah, the judgment is it's going to flood the whole earth and wipe it clean. Here there's also judgment. So there's sin here like there is in the other Passages. There's judgment here, like there is in the other passages. But in the other passages, there is also a glimmer of hope. You remember? In the garden, there's the sin. They wanted to be like God, they didn't trust God and his ways. And then there's the judgment that they're cast out of the garden. But even as they're going out of the garden, you get the glimmer of hope with the very first prophecy about Jesus Christ coming when the Lord says to the woman that someday. Your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. And with the the ark, there's the sin of the people, and then there's the judgment of the flood, but there's also hope. There's the rainbow that God puts in the sky, like like a warrior who hangs up his bow and says, never again am I going to destroy the earth like this. And Noah, I have saved you and your family so you can have a fresh start over here. So there's the hope. The difference in this passage is that there's the sin of the people in seeking their own glory and their own self-protection, and then there's the judgment of God when He comes down and He confuses their languages, but there's no mention of any kind of hope. It just ends with these sinful people now being scattered to the far corners of the world, which begs us to ask, where is the hope in this passage? you're one chapter away from it. Because you cannot fully grasp the significance of Genesis chapter 12 until you understand what has happened in Genesis chapter 11. Because in Genesis chapter 11, as it closes, the Lord has sent all of these people out to the far corners of the earth. They've all got these confused languages so that, so that they can uh, uh, stop their sinful colluding together. And then in Genesis chapter 12, you're going to come face-to-face with a character of man called Abram that the Lord is going to speak to. And the Lord is going to make Abram a promise to, to make him a great nation and to give him a land of his own. And the Lord is going to tell Abram that he and his descendants are going to be a blessing to every nation on the earth. So those same people that God just judged, those same people that God just scattered to the four corners of the earth, those same people, God has not forgotten them. And in fact, In Genesis 12, He institutes His plan for all of those people to be blessed even in the midst of their own sinfulness. And how would they be blessed? It's because centuries upon centuries after God gives this promise to Abram that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, one of Abraham's descendants will be named Jesus. And it's through the Gospel that all of these people with confused languages will someday be brought back together. Except this time, they're not going to be brought together to try and do what only God can do and to try and be what only God can be. This time, they're going to be brought together under the common language of grace. This time, they're going to be united not to supplant the glory of God, but for the glory of God. This time, they're not going to come together so that they can protect themselves. They're going to come together because their souls have been ultimately and eternally protected by Jesus. There will come a day when they'll all come back together again and people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the face of the earth will come together and fall down and glorify God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus. That's the end of Genesis chapter 11. And that's the story that we find ourselves caught up in this morning, friends. We're caught up in this story. We're caught up in the great gospel narrative of the good news going to all of these people who have been scattered to the four corners of the world. Not only that, but we are those people who have received this blessing that was promised so long ago. And because we are, we can actively fight against the tendency that's in our own hearts to do what only God can do and to be what only God can be. So I wonder this morning if you would think about your own life and consider is there that desire in you to be recognized, to be known? And repent of that. Find yourself caught up in the glory of Jesus instead. Is there desire is that desire inside of you for self-preservation? Do you live with a high degree of anxiety? Then remind yourself God will take care of you and He'll give you His daily bread. And all those things bring glory to the Lord because He's the one who truly and rightly deserves it. I'd love to pray for us to that end this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for these words from your book. There humbling and they're convicting, they're penetrating and they're sharp. And we confess, Lord, that this same tendency that is in the people that we read about today, it is in us. It is in us. To seek our own glory instead of yours, it's in us. To take matters into our own hands constantly, we pray that against that we would be people of faith. We thank you. We thank you that we are the people who have been scattered to the far edges of the earth. We are the ones that have had our languages confused. But we thank you for this new language of grace that you speak to us in, that we have this in common. We pray, Lord, that we would be ever more conversant it. Help us, Lord, to battle these tendencies actively. We trust that you will help us do it. We pray that it would be done, it would be sown in the name, and for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen.